welcome to Harney's Offshore Mitigation Podcast. I am delighted to have with me here William Peake, partner in our London office. William, how are you? Yeah, great. Thanks, Ian. Delighted to be back. We are going to discuss today this interesting case handed down on the 20th of August 2021 by Justice David Doyle called Global Fidelity Bank Involuntary Liquidation at the time of the, of the application. Um, and it's all to do with what I often used to describe as the invidious practice of challenging the mere identity of a liquidator. But in fact, that's too simplistic because sometimes there are very good reasons to challenge the identity of a liquidator as, as long as it's not sort of facile and limited only to her identity. Isn't, isn't that right, Will? Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And actually picking through the rubble of this judgment is actually a fantastic exercise because there's so many offshore topics that come into very sharp focus. And I think it's really worth taking a, a counter through some of those key issues. And in your opening gambit, you specified the dates of the judgments and, and mm. dates in relation to this case and its factual matrix are extremely important. And the judge puts a real significance as to the dates of the JVL's engagement, the date of the JVL's draft report, and the date of the JVL's final report. I think it's worth focusing on the fact that the court acknowledged very, very quickly that the JVL's entered into open and transparent communications with the stakeholder base. Absolutely. And they adopt a neutral position. They go so far as to say in those communications that a depositor in the bank has opposed our appointment. So it is fair and square. Yeah. There is an issue there to all of the stakeholders and all of the creditor base. And the court then goes to put significance in relation to the fact that there was one dissenting creditor. And actually on the eve of the application where this issue was going to be dealt with, another significant creditor actually came forward and said that they have no objection to the JVLs continuing in their role as official liquidators. Yeah, exactly. And this is important in the context of what is the purpose of the official liquidation. It's to resolve and deal with the issues arising for those with the economic interests. And there has to be an objective analysis of that. And the views of all of those creditors are relevant. And I think it might be helpful to pause there to sketch out the three key aspects that frame the judgment going forward. And if, if for no other reason, Ian, than to stop me talking. Well, not at all. <laughs> I mean, the, the, the setting out this background is is so so important. <laughs> And as you say, it's something that, that occurs for us as a firm every week or, or, or month and that we have to decide when clients ask us, well, what about the objectivity of this liquidator? Uh, should we propose this liquidator? Is there any reason to object mm. to this liquidator? And of course, it depends on the law, the objective findings uh, of the court as to whether there could be any reason why the official liquidator is not doing her job, both that as a factual matter and then the appearances as well as previous history. But so often it is a stakeholder's ignorance actually of the process of the fact mm. that 
these are licensed practitioners mm. in Ireland's case we're talking about the Cayman Islands and as Justice David Doyle puts it at the very end of his, his judgment these are licensed practitioners who have a deep deep interest in quote wishing to preserve mm. their professional reputations in the mind of the courts and others it is not naive wishful thinking or unrealistic to state that confidence can reasonably be placed in them now listen this is paragraph 90 so he's gone through all the reasons why of course there's no issue here but that driver of them being licensed their professional reputations the uh, need for future work based on their previous credibility and the fact that they are officers of the court exactly, um, exactly. is something that i think practitioners have a duty to explain to their clients actually before making any silly up application um, now, I should just let you go back to that main point, but I, I just wanted to comment also that I read this judgment over and over. It's so interesting, and, and I'd recommend to anyone to read it, but in, in the middle paragraphs, 31 to 40, we're actually taking through some of, let's call them the previous generation's most interesting international fraud cases. We, we have dicta from the Maxwell fraud case, uh, the Daily Mail once described him as the crook of the century, who managed to use £90 million pounds worth of, of a pension fund's um, assets for, for his own benefit to prop up his own share price. We have the, the further case of Polypec, which those of, of a generation in the 1990s remember i think the only case missing of the 1990s is bcci and this report yes yes it's quite a read actually it's a great judgment yeah no absolutely and and it is a it is a greatest hits of cases (laughs) that law students actually will recognize and it's interesting that in relation to the cayman judgments that are are relied on again you know we see tangerine being relied on we see the alpha case we see the first architects of cayman's financial services jurisdiction we hear from Jones, we hear from Foster, we hear from Quinn, and Quinn, yeah. they they are they are the individuals who who shaped and formed Cayman as a jurisdiction, made it the creditor friendly jurisdiction that it is, and 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 just picking up actually Ian, on your point of individuals guarding their reputation because we are all I mean without your reputation you are you are nothing and I'm sure there's a much more pithy Descartes quote for that but in relation to actually the next paragraph of of paragraph 91 of the judgment where Mm. Mr Justice Doyle actually gets into the fact that this is important to the jurisdiction we're all ambassadors for the jurisdiction and unless somewhere like Cayman that is a financial services hub has a competent and functioning and effective insolvency regime that the regime itself will not work, that the jurisdiction is impacted by that. And, and that goes to your point, Ian, of think long and hard before making these, these applications. Think long and hard as to who is being scrutinized, what what professional services. But just going back to the actual case that you can you can strip away a lot of the, the necessary trot through the, the the common law uh, jurisdictions and, and it can be reduced into the three principles from Mr Justice Jones in the 2013 Hadar case whereby it turns on first of all you have to identify the facts of the prior relationship and the involvement that's why the timing is so important in relation to the short duration and the limited issues that the JVLs looked at and that they were engaged the 9th of July they produced a draft report on the 14th of July. On the 16th of July, they produced a final report which hadn't been amended. That's a 
very, very tight window. Um, very, very tight. And, and, and it, it sort of echoes the use of the administration procedure through an administrator in a different context, of course, in the UK. And it, it's absolutely not unusual for an administrator or proposed administrator to be looking at a contingency plan or doing some work for, a, for, for, for secure creditors banks to, mm. to, to see you know, what the state of the, of the company is in. And the judge actually quotes uh, Lightman and Moss, and, he's, and it just where it says the proposed administrator will ordinarily undertake an investigation of the company's affairs and financial position and consequently offer advice before being appointed, which will include advice on the timing and manner of appointment. And, you know, I, I, I say that to, to our liquidator proposed appointees. Yes, you have to be extremely careful, but no, it's, it is not the law that you may not have any involvement and may not communicate that that just isn't correct, you know. Um, but mm. you know, I think there is a sense in the community um, that a proposed appointee has to be an absolute stranger to the, the balance sheet, as it were, of the company, which in and of itself can actually present a difficulty because then that appointee has, has zero previous involvement or understanding. And in some limited circumstances, um, previous dealings can, can create efficiencies. Mm. Yeah, I, I mean, and, and, you know, for example, Barclay Applegate relief, the, the, those sure. judgments actually speak to work done in the past. There's an acknowledgement that there may be a learning curve, that there may be useful work done. And, and this is what the judge has to actually look at and balance up whether there are pros and there are cons. And uh, Mr. Justice Foster in, in the Tangerine judgment specifically identified that. So there does need to be a nitty gritty analysis of that prior relationship before you move on to limbs two and three of the Hadar test. And the second limb is you need to determine if the existence is capable of impairing the appearance of independence. Yeah. And our, our blog actually touches on that point very, very quickly in relation to the optics. And I always, I always remember that, you know, Mr. Justice Jones, I think he says it just appearance matters. Mm. And the, the optics in and around that could possibly fetter the abilities of the office holders to do their work properly. It's and, massively uh, distracting if, if half of the, the stakeholders with an economic uh, interest in the outcome believe that their liquidator is in fact biased in some way. Um, it, it, it could be very bad for the, the disposition, the final resolution of, of the liquidation action. Mm, absolutely. And it's absolutely opposite that the most impeccably attired individual that I ever worked with, uh, Mr. Justice Jones, should say that that appearance matters. Uh, <laughs> he, always, he always had an amazing ability to make me look like a bedraggled street urchin. And then the, the next limb of the test is that if you are able to determine that existence of a possible optical infringement of independence, you need to determine if it is sufficiently material to the liquidation that a fair-minded stakeholder could reasonably object. So with those in play, Mr. Justice Doyle then applies applies the law to the facts. And there's also a beautifully global feel to this judgment in terms of the, the common law analysis and in terms of Mr. Justice Doyle previously sat in the Isle of Man. And he That's looks right. at this specifically from an Isle of Man perspective, but also it's really interesting to see it in the Isle of Man context. He says, you know, I recall referring to the Cayman cases, to the common law cases, and you get that truly multifaceted common law approach 
and it really does just go to show how all jurisdictions which have insolvency law as a key aspect of their armory, they all have the same issues. These are common denominators. And that's why there is so much law on the topic. And I think without getting too, too philosophical, but I think earlier in the podcast, you, you did ask me to uh, to think deeply. There is a risk in any legal system that actually what we all take for granted is good controls to ensure the objectivity, the good fiduciary behaviour of our office holders is um, durable. But as we can see, that isn't always the case. But all of these legal principles, the institutions that keep these principles of fairness and objectivity serving the stakeholders must be maintained rigorously by the mm. courts and practitioners. You know, it, it's all very delicate. When it, when it goes wrong, it is horrendously bad for confidence mm. in the court system for insolvency mm. infrastructure. Absolutely. And those duties hover constantly throughout the life cycle of the matter. They are amplified at certain times, for example, at the appointment stage, but they sit as a golden thread throughout the case. And it is a independence, conflict. They're all litigation strategies that are adopted and they have to be minded. And you're a custodian of those throughout the life cycle of the of the matter. And, and we are all officers of the court. Yeah. We are shoulder to shoulder with the insolvency appointee on those on those issues. And that is what gives people the confidence and the frankly desire to do their business in those jurisdictions. I think that the most difficult cases and where this issue comes into sharpest refraction is in fact not in this particular case of Global Fidelity Bank. Yes, I think it's the cases that scare me the most, actually, are those provisional liquidation cases where a company is mm. seeking an appointee in, in light-touch PL, such that the management and the proposed JPLs will be working together in the future. And then you have this battle for which appointee should be preferred. And the accusation is, well, of course, management has gone to the person uh, that they think will be the, the, the mm. softest touch in the light touch liquidation. And, you know, the, the, the management has no doubt been given soft assurances in some way through some you know, course of conduct or whatever. And the creditors say, we want someone completely independent. And some creditors say, well, actually, we don't mind because that person person's been on the ground for a long time. And then we always go back to the argument, we should say, well, these are all professionals. It's very invidious to be arguing about mm. which one has a better reputation. It's really ugly. But on the other hand, um, I think clients misunderstand that and, and, and they think they're seeking to obtain some advantage. And actually in this judgment, I mean, it's CW Group is cited, as you would expect. And the recent Adamus Asia Strategic Opportunity case mm also there. So I think my, my own view is, is that is where we are at greatest risk of bad things happening, of management wishing to obstruct rather than facilitate an efficient liquidation process, presumably because of anxieties as to where that process will lead is what Ian Cavely, Justice uh, Caverly uh, notes in the uh, the Adamus Asian Origin Fund. I think he's <laughs> absolutely right in that particular case, um, and, and something constantly for us all to be very, very careful of. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. But but I think it does go back to the, the common denominator principles that if you were approaching the factual matrix in relation to the provisional liquidation context, these principles still still apply, and you need to not lose lose sight of that. And mm. 
if these were two exam questions, this first one is straightforward. And, and you know, and the judge comes out and says that. He, says, this, he actually explicitly says this is not finely balanced. And, and and makes makes his conclusions. But if you are if, if the provisional liquidation context where you have a insolvency practitioner inveigled with with management, that then leads to a scrap over the official appointments. That that's a much more challenging exam question. Probably has listen. You always know which cases are are going to be those cases because, of course, it's the cases where the company that wishes to restructure itself bad advice maybe decides to hold do the whole thing secretly. They they don't mm. inform stakeholders that they intend to apply to put itself into PL. They don't give over the books and records in an, in an open way. Of course, a company driven restructuring has been the most open process you can imagine to bring mm. the economic interest uh, holders on board. And it's those kind of clandestine applications where they just get the messaging, the PR, the transparency all wrong, that you know, of course, the reaction is going to be, well, we're not letting you use your guy. <laughs> you, know? yeah. so you can yeah. almost yeah. predict it. Absolutely. And, and it goes back to one of the, you know, my opening opening points that open and transparent correspondence and communications between the professionals who people have put trust and confidence in those individuals to resolve the issues of the company that they have an economic interest in. There has to be open, transparent and frank yeah. communications. And, and that's why this case is, you know, is a paradigm example of no attempt was made to better a hand. The hand is the hand. And, mm -hmm. and that is the approach they take. And it's utterly yeah. objective. And the judge acknowledges that and allows that as the kind of the zephyr of good practice upon which to reach a swift conclusion that it's not finally balanced. In fact, it's a bit more than the, the zephyr of good practice. It's, it, it's actually the law, isn't it, as, as set down by Mr. Justice Hoffman in, in the common law in Roselmine. I mean, it's saying basically a voluntary liquidator in such a situation where the, the liquidation is going to become mm. compulsory ought to just sit back and say, up to you, everyone. We, we're here to help. I, 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 said, I didn't know that until I read this case. <laughs> Yeah, it's a really worthwhile exercise going through this case in, in fastidious detail because it, it really it does remind you of so many pertinent authorities and it does just a wonderful job of weaving together all of the jurisdictions and then reducing them into key takeaway points and then reaching the conclusion. Anyway, thanks so much, Phil. I, I really enjoyed that. Thanks, it's really yeah, good. No, I'm, yeah, absolutely. That was very good. Very good fun. And I should just say to our audience, thank you very much for joining us and uh, do visit us on highs.com. You can find our podcasts and blogs and subscribe to the same if you, if you wish. Thank you very much.